Hi, and welcome to Matt Holman Talks Mental Health, the podcast where I had the opportunity to sit down and chat to amazing humans about their journeys through life. For this episode, I'm so happy to introduce Charlotte's story to the conversation. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you. Lovely to have you. Um, as I always do, just a very brief introduction from me, albeit you'll do your proper introduction in a second, um, how we got to this recording. Now, interestingly, I have an amazing team who work with me at Simpler, and one of my colleagues uh, had a conversation with Charlotte and then came to me straight away and said, Matt, you need to talk to this person. They're amazing. They've got lots of things going on in their world, and I think they'll make a great guest for your podcast. So here we are. Uh, that was a message that I was receiving from my colleague just last week. So within less than a week, we were recording together. So Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. I don't know a huge amount about you, which is lovely because I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to enjoy listening to what's going on or what, what you've been through in your experiences. But do a very brief introduction and then I'll ask you the big question. OK, I'm Charlotte Story. I currently run a, an online company called Leader Empowerment, but that's um, very much not the career I started out with. I started out uh, as a professional actor and musician. I was a West End performer for about 15 years, and uh, that was career number one. And then I moved into teaching, and through the teaching, I've really learned to, to handle my own mental stability, I suppose I would describe it as. So I've become much less of a reactive person than I was back in the day. And I, I talked to you, Matt, just before we came online about the fact that at this moment, my mum's dying of leukemia, and she's critically ill in hospital. And most people think, you know, that's that's crazy. How are you not falling to pieces? Well, I've had those episodes of falling to pieces. And I've called upon all of the things that I've learned, really, the resilience factors that I've learned to, to be able to cope with that reality now. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you. And I think you've alluded to a couple of the things that we're going to be covering in, the, in this conversation as well. But um, it's lovely to have you, Charlotte. Thank you for joining. Um, so the big question I ask every guest is simple, um, although you're going to fill it with all of your experience. But your journey with the mental health, your life, you know, and just sort of define it and describe it as you wish to. So over to you. Well, I was born in Coventry a long time ago now, actually, into a fairly deprived community, I suppose, where people were quite brutal. You know, I saw a lot of domestic violence in my right. childhood, not in my own home, but certainly around me. And I was friends with the lame ducks, I suppose. I was always really attracted to helping people from a very early age. So I, I gravitated towards the people that weren't necessarily particularly competent socially they weren't great sports people and yet I was very sporty and I think probably the defining moment where I realized I was really interested more in other people than I was in myself was when I was captain of the hockey team and I was asked to pick some people from the group just our, our form group to be on the team and there was uh, you know, some really great sports people there but I chose the two that were nobody would ever choose so I chose these two people and um 30 years later at the school reunion, they came up to me and I barely recognised them. We'd all changed so much. And they said, yeah. probably the most significant day in our whole school life was when you rescued us from being last and you put us first. And I thought, gosh, you know, there's such a powerful yeah. story there, isn't there, yeah. about, about really looking at other people and identifying need. And that really set a fire inside me. And I thought, gosh, you know, they've remembered that across three decades. That was really powerful. So I was in the middle of my West End acting career at the time which wasn't um, uh, particularly fulfilling in and of itself. Uh, but I, there was just something calling inside me to say, you know, this is about you. The West End career is about you and attracting attention to you and competing against other people and looking yeah. at people with more and being envious of other people's career progress. You never have a moment. I, I certainly didn't take any time out to think about people with less. So that, that sensitivity, I think, started early on, you know, seeing kids who were really brutalised by aggressive parents Lots of kids turned to crime very early, and it was a big Coventry is a big city with lots of its own economic and um, and integration difficulties. So I was attracted to the grittiness of 
working with people in urban settings who had complex problems. And I was always a good listener. I think that really helped me. It certainly helped me in later life, actually mm. um, listening more than I speak. I think that's a, a great and very overlooked capacity, actually. So I grew up in this rather difficult environment. My dad was disabled, which, which was tricky. Uh, and any point of difference in the kind of very, very binary neighbourhood in which I grew up was, was very challenging indeed. And there were still those awful phrases uh, about disabled people being banded around. And I, and I took it personally and it really, it stuck. Those arrows dug deep into my sensibility. So I had a dad who'd had a really bad spinal injury. And for most of my childhood, really, he was in a spiker plaster, which is a solid um, plaster of Paris plaster that went down his legs. And so he walked very, very awkwardly. Yeah. And he was very, he was very, very pillowed. So that was, that was tough, you know, so I, I found it difficult to, to make the right kind of friends at school. So I had two, two binary groups, really, of friends, people who were dangerous and exciting and always in trouble. And I was very easily led by them. And the others, the people that I picked for the hockey team, you know, the people who were always last and I wanted to put them first. So there was this dreadful tension. And that doesn't lead to happy outcomes. You know, yeah. I ended up getting into lots of trouble and being the one that was pushed, you know, under the bus all the time by these rather more aggressive individuals. So bullying was a very, very significant part of my childhood. Mm. And it became very physical. I was uh, probably the worst thing that ever happened to me. And this, this is quite a traumatic story to listen to it's not not traumatic story for me to tell so I'll happily tell it to you uh, but one of the girls at school who ended up being in the police force actually and you'll hear the irony of this when you hear the end of the story right. she, she I was really a, a very talented musician I, I had no there was no money in our house for for any formal music training but my nan gave me a clarinet for my seventh birthday right. and my mom hated the noise of it and my dad was always quite poorly so I used to put myself into my dad's wardrobe and play it it was a big wardrobe of suits so I used to put myself in the wardrobe where the sound would be all dampened down. And then when I was 18, you know, I'd spent a long time in that wardrobe. It <laughs> came out as a really good ragtime clarinet player. Wow. And uh, that was a very helpful asset that, that kick-started yeah. my first career, I suppose. Uh, so I retreated into music. That was my that was my therapy, really. Uh, and I was great at it. And it brought, brought attention to me, favourable attention, rather than unfavourable attention. And this particular bully hated that. Uh, so she locked me in her garage and she she smashed up my clarinet. Wow. And she got uh, a pair of pliers and she snapped out one of my front teeth so I couldn't play it. You know. So that was a, it was a horrific event. You know, so it's very, very, very wow. traumatic. And, um, you know, you spend thousands of pounds in therapy, don't you, getting over things like that. So that was really tough. Yeah. But uh, I eventually managed to do really well at school. And she, she wasn't bright enough to carry on and do A-levels. So that for me was an amazing sanctuary. Mm. I managed to get out of that school system. And the more young people I speak to in the in the service profession that I provide, I, I run a, a mental health charity for young people called Aspire. Yeah. Yeah. And that's down here in the southwest. And a lot of them tell me about these brutal physical mental experiences that they have. And they talk about their school days as being not the best days of their lives, but an absolute crucible of awfulness. Yeah. And the mental health services provision within schools is woefully inadequate, as we know, because of funding. And there's probably one or two mental health providers within the school for sometimes cohorts of two and a half thousand kids, which is yeah. deeply in inadequate. CAMS, as you know, is really difficult for young people to assess. When they meet a CAMS practitioner, it's not the same practitioner they might meet, meet several journeys down the line and they've got to reiterate the story and that's yeah. painful and traumatic and it just re-triggers very, very negative spirals. So I'm very aware of how, how difficult that is. That was my lived experience. So I wanted to try and put some of my zero journey 
into a kind of heroic state, if you like. So really understand that journey for young people of physical and mental brutality, going home to you know a troubled setting where parents are arguing, where there isn't enough money, where there's disability, all of these factors, you know, and I was, you know, pretty much a young carer. That's also a, yeah. a reality for a lot of our young people with mental health issues. You know, they're a neglected entity. They're not having a childhood. They can't get out. It's a very difficult life to lead. So there was all that burning away in the background. And then there was this emerging musician and I didn't really know what to do with it. So went on, did my A-levels, was very inspired by some brilliant teaching. And I lost myself in books and music and art. And that really was a phenomenal therapy for me still look back as, on that probably as the most effective therapy you know just that that lifelong love of learning which I, I've never let go of then I went on to Birmingham University to do English and theology I had half a mind to maybe a vicar I wanted to do something pastoral okay <laughs> tangential yeah. and bizarre yeah uh, but uh, then English really captured my heart so I went on I carried on at Birmingham went to the Shakespeare Institute to do a master's degree in Shakespeare studies okay so I'm a, you know fairly expert at verse speaking and all the, the minutiae that an actor would need to be able to to go on the stage and, and speak that verse well so then did an internship at the royal shakespeare company and then started a, a journey as an, an actor trained for a year as a postgraduate actor and then i, I left drama school on the friday and I'd, I'd written the music for the end of term showcase so you showcase your work in front of all the oh. casting directors and agents so i'd written the music uh, and there was a man in the audience called harvey bruff a really famous musician. He wrote the music for Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, so he's really famous. Okay. Um, wow. Cinematic composer. He just said, you know, you've got enormous talent. What are you going to do with it? And I just said, I don't know. I, you know, I finished drama school today. Yeah. And he said, yeah. well, come and work with me. So we did. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time sampling back in the days when that was really novel. Mm. You know, we sampled stuff that was sold to bands like The Beloved. And you know, we were sampling little snatches of um, the Eurythmics and Kate Bush. And those those samples became very embedded in, in early kind of um, garage music so that was my first kind of entry into the into that career and then I auditioned for a play at the Young Vic and, and got that so by the time I got home on the number 73 bus there was a voicemail do you remember voicemail yeah yeah, voicemails yeah. saying oh you know you've got the job and you start on Monday so so that was the beginning of it really and then I um I was really lucky I got a really big break I I got a part in uh, Sam Mendes production of Cabaret at the Don Moore Warehouse which which launched wow. his career really in, in terms of in, he filmed it so it became a became a film and Spielberg was in the audience and he realized that he was in the hands of somebody really very eminent so Sam Mendes went off to Hollywood and had the career that he had. so that was amazing you know I spent I spent a lot of time um at a very high level in the West End and then uh, I had some emerging health issues I'd always been very flexible lots of double jointedness which is great you know for sports I was a great sportsman and I'm very good for playing instruments you know the more curly your thumbs are and the easier it is for you to be very dexterous. But I didn't realise that, you know, being so hypermobile could be yeah. problematic. And suddenly joints are dislocating, fingers, jaw, shoulders particularly, problematic. Right. And I would go on stage at night. I played the baritone saxophone in the end. That was my that was my instrument of choice. Right. So, you know, sort of three stone of instruments, like holding a baby or a five-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, 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 bigger than the baby, yeah. So I would literally get some gaffer tape and I put it here on my arm and then strap it up to stop my shoulders coming out of joint. Uh -huh. And because uh, the shows from the West End tore out, you know, you're on, in the regions all the time. Every every time a show finishes its six month run in the West End, you do number one circuit. So you go all around the UK. So everyone and anyone can see the show. They don't have to come to London. And then I came back um, to London and thought I better get something done about this because I dislocated my shoulders about 12 times a day, 13 times a day. And it would happen 
opening bags of crisps and putting coats on. I thought oh my there's probably something going on here. Yeah, yeah. So went right to the top end of the of the service. Really met an incredible guy who's still practicing. This is this is an incredibly inspirational story in itself. Um, he's called Professor Rodney Graham, and I think he's in his mid nineties now, but he's still professor of hypermobility at the University College London. Wow. And I was one of the first patients that he he divined to have Ehlers-Danlos type three, which is you know, a complex soft tissue and um, collagen deficient disorder. Okay. So went through lots and lots of treatment to try and make that right, but I passed that point of no return really, where that was going to be difficult. So in 2008, I had the first polyether, ether ketone shoulder replacement, or as a resurfacing actually. So I had my shoulder um, taken out and a plastic thing put in, but there weren't enough clinical trials to make that a success. Um, it was unlicensed and really unregulated. Wow. And that caused me to have a very, very significant uh, systemic breakdown. My body went into what's called an autophagic attack, where your cells and all of the soft tissue starts to eat itself. So I had a complete fasciitis here in, in the upper arm. So there was no skin, no muscle left. It was all eaten away. So eventually had two more shoulders and was terribly allergic to both of those. So I've ended up now with what's called a flail arm. This is a brace that's been made for me. But as you can see, I've just turned the arm around. This oh, is okay. The top of the arm at all. So wow. there's no humerus, no elbow, no anything. So this is a kind of empty yeah. space. Yeah. So I went from being um, a successful actor musician as, as a sideline. I was a as a session musician, so I played for Rod Stewart, Van Morrison, oh, wow. Natalie Cole, Dinah Crawl, you know, and did all those big '80s outings. You know, with all the people from the 1980s doing career revival work in in Europe. Central Europe loves '80s music. Yeah, so yeah. Massive stadiums in Cologne. You know, fifty thousand people. Wow. Watching this play. So you know, I went from that to to being unable to dress myself, to live independently. So I handed the keys back on my flat in Wimbledon Village. And, you know, having had a really well-paid, very high-level career, yeah. just my life collapsed, absolutely collapsed. So my mental health went with it. Yeah. And along the road there, you know, I'd seen a lot of people in mental health decline. You can't be a musician on the road and not be exposed to drugs and drink and yeah. just self-destruction. You know, it's a, it, people think it's a glamorous life. It's a very difficult life to lead. Yeah. Having no home, no base, no family to love and support you, you're just really at the whim of the the lassitude of your mental well-being. And sometimes it's low down, sometimes it's high up, but yeah. very, very rarely on a level. So I realised I was living this sort of extreme reactive life to the things that had happened to me. So I thought I'm going to have to get some help. So I stuck out uh, for a practitioner that might be able to help me to get my mind right because work is incredibly important to me, yeah. and I love to be I love to help people. So I thought, well, how can I still get the buzz that I got from being on stage? Because it is a buzz. You know, adrenaline is a very powerful drug. When you don't get a round of applause every night after what you do, it's weird, you know, coming yeah. back to reality and having to think about my own washing and ironing. You know, I'd had someone doing that for me for years yeah. on, on, yeah. you know, on, on the road. And yeah. suddenly there was this sort of granular, boring, everyday grind. And I thought, God, you know, this is really depressing. So that probably more than anything was, was a real shock. Mm. I sound like a princess, don't no, not at all. It, not was at all. A, it was a real kind of mind shift. So I ended up living, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. I ended up having had that life, living back at home with my parents because I needed help to be supported and I hadn't got any money. I was yep. absolutely broke. So that, you know, my I think my zero to hero journey from there has been quite a profound one. I sought some really good mental health support. I went to meet a woman who was a neurolinguistic programming Okay. counsellor because that really seemed to chime with my desire for it to be quite intensely intellectual as well yep and she just said look you know 
how you do something is how you do everything. So if you can understand how you do things, you can change that. If you ask yourself what and why, you'll always justify why you're doing something or what you're doing. But if you look at the process, the granular process of how you do something, then you can change that, that connection between your mind and your body. And I realized that I was living in my head as a depressed person and I hadn't remembered that there was this body, although it wasn't the body that I was in control of or particularly sure. like, to be honest, when you go through physical transformation and, and disability hits you midlife, it's very difficult. I think it's probably more difficult than living with it forever. Oh. So, you know, coming from a very able, dexterous life to being physically very disabled was really, really tough. So those processes, the looking at the how was really important for me. That really saved my life. So I looked more into NLP and into how I could use it and, and all of the actor training processes that I'd gone through to, to help people to put their lives back together after trauma. Yep. So I've got this sort of mantra in my business now, leader empowerment's all about post-traumatic growth. And I don't necessarily mean physical trauma and I don't necessarily mean masses of mental trauma. You know, you don't have to have gone through sexual abuse or domestic violence or no. near suicidal experiences to, to experience mental ill health, as you well know. Yeah. You, you just need to have a very poor view of yourself and you have to just believe that the world is against you. And all you need to do every day is to program that into your brain and very, very quickly you'll be in a very dark and isolated place. So I work, neuro-linguistic programming is wonderfully enabling in that it, it enables you to interrogate everything you say. Yep. So we become what we say. So if I say everything's against me, then yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Whereas if I wake up every morning, and as I do, I do this mantra with myself every morning, I say, I am rich beyond my wildest dreams. And honestly, I'm not mad. No. That's not, not financially true. <laughs> But I'm rich in love. Yeah. I'm very loved. I'm rich in ability. Since my disability, I, I, my dad said to me, my dad's quite a profoundly um, interesting man, actually. He, he, overcoming his own disability, I think, has given him quite a good language system for this. And he said, look, Charlotte, what are you going to do? You've got two choices. You can look at the dirt or you can look at the stars. What is there in your life that you haven't done that you really feel you need to put in place before you die to feel that you've lived the life you love. And right. I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to fly. I, yeah. I went out with a guy who was um, uh, in a quite a famous pop group many years ago on my, my tour as a, as a female sax player. I was introduced to lots of gentlemen of the parish and he was yeah. one of them. I'm not going to name him because that wouldn't be professional. But uh, he flew a Learjet and I thought, wow, you know, we went right. here, there and everywhere in it and it was very glamorous. And I thought to myself, I want to be a pilot. My dad said, well, should we look into being a disabled pilot? And I said, oh, come on, dad, you know, I've got one arm. Can't use the other yeah, one. I can't use my right yeah. arm. I've lost my dominant arm. He said, no, come on, it might be possible. So I looked it up and it was possible. Um, so I applied for a flying scholarship for disabled people. And I went to the interview at Cranwell, RF Cranwell in 2019. Yep. One of only a very small number of women, of course. Only 5% of pilots are actually female. And mm -hmm. I think about 0.3% are actually disabled. <laughs> so I thought the chance of me getting a scholarship was slim. slim. But yep. thanks to um, Lockheed Martin, they they took me on and uh, they sponsored my flying scholarship. And I'm now on a pathway uh, to teach other people, uh, the disabled people, to fly. So I've, I've learned to fly. Incredible. And it's uh, probably one of the most amazing things. If, you, if you're frightened of flying, folks, get up in a light aircraft. It's a very different experience to being on a commercial aircraft where you can see uh, your problems just shrinking away within 60 seconds of takeoff. You know, you're probably at a thousand feet and yep. your problems just seem very, very infinitesimally small beneath you. So for me, that's been the most amazing thing. So my practice is all about getting people to, to move from that second officer, you know, the first officer, the person sitting in the right hand seat yep. 
yeah. uh, to being a pilot in command. You, know, you, can, you can be pilot in command of your own life. And you can do that very much through trying to unite. And we try and separate them. We try and separate body and mind. And um, we don't want to go to the gym because, it, you know, it's punishment. But actually, it, it does yeah. make you feel a lot better to do the very thing that you're trying to struggle against. So trying to unite body and mind yeah. and asking yourself how mm. you do something. And if you can understand how you're doing it and it's not giving you the outcome you need, you can look at that how and, yeah. and you can try and find a different way of doing something. I did some work um, in the last couple of years with the Royal Marines Band, probably my, my, my most exciting area of work, really. And I prepare their um, core of drums. These lads play the drums. They're phenomenally expert at what they do. They're very elite individuals. Uh, and they also play the valveless bugle. And they have to do the last post. And we all know the tune. Every, everyone knows how that tune goes. Uh, and it's a valveless instrument that's incredibly difficult to play when you're full of physical tension. So I've been working with the troops at uh, Lipston and Portsmouth, the training school, and at HMS Raleigh over the last few years to dissipate physical tension so that they can do that job without worrying about the outcome. They can just look at the how they're doing things with physical tension, release the physical tension, and do it without so that they can put all of their training into immaculate practice. Right. And I prepared them for the Queen's funeral, or Prince of, uh, for the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, and also for the, for the coronation, you know, just to see the impact of the work <clears throat> In amazing. a global setting like that has been yeah. absolutely amazing. So from my little housing estate in Coventry, uh, this troubled child, you know, from a yeah. very difficult background who's come through, you know, the glamour of the West End and from, you know, international musical touring to being completely shattered by physical trauma mm. and to being given the wrong shoulder. And yet that's that's invented this new part of my life, which is the most fulfilling part, believe me. I'd rather be doing what I'm doing uh, than standing on a stage. Yeah. In, performing in front of thousands of people you you don't get to know your audience in that that context you, you do a lovely thing for them it takes them out of their rather tedious lives often that's why people pay money to see it isn't it uh, and you do something lovely for people for three hours and they thank you by giving you a clap but this the work that i do now to really help people who are trapped um who who don't have the courage to to live the life they lead i i hope that my story of learning to fly one-handed as a woman is a is a very powerful one so yeah. I've tried to unite everything I've ever done in, in the practice that I'm currently doing. So I'm, I'm just reaching out at the moment. What I'm looking for is just a chat. I'm not selling anything. I'm not actually yeah. even running a business at the moment. I just want to meet people who've been where I have, you know, not necessarily physically or wherever, but just trapped, just stuck yeah. because of, of mental limitation. I'm trying to get them back into their bodies so that they know whenever anything hits them broadside, they've got the resilience and the consistency not to be reactive, but to be proactive. Brilliant. That's uh, that's what I want. That's what I want to do with the rest of my life. Amazing, incredible. I uh, yeah. Thank well, thank you. It's been uh, what a fascinating and inspiring and interesting story though, and I, that's why I love this. Is I love sitting back and just just listening and riding the journey with you, and and you know sharing those sort of moments and experiences that you've been through. And what I love is what you're into now and where you are and and what you're doing and, and going through that it's interesting isn't it there's sort of like there's there's changes in direction in there there's there's china challenges there's experiences that we get and and it's what you said at the end there's so so important i think around 
moving from reaction you know so so what we tend to do is we only know things are wrong when they're wrong <laughs> we never see them coming or we never see the transition to them so I think that's so so powerful what you're sort of positioning now and, and sharing with with the everybody that's listening so you know an invitation there for anybody that is listening or does want to know if you want to have a chat with Charlotte I know you're gathering conversations thoughts feedback and everything else for for a period of time now before you go for the the big programs that you want to deliver in the future but you know, feel free to get in touch with you, right, Charlotte? You oh, that'd be that? lovely. Yeah, yeah yes, you know, and and as always, I'll drop all the details into the the episode so that people can find you, they can connect with you. You know, we'll we'll be sharing this obviously on social. So so it it really is just you know, let's connect, let's talk because I I think yeah, as I say, you you've got a fascinating story and journey that you're on. You know, and it and it continues, doesn't it? And it's that. Oh, absolutely you know what 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 does the future look like and i i think i can already see a little bit about where your future's heading um especially with the flying and the the training leadership stuff that you do um so as we wrap into sort of the last part of this i always sort of like to leave the guest with the opportunity to sort of say parting thoughts mantras quotes you've already given a wonderful quote in there we might even get a repeat of that quote i'm guessing um because it sounds like a really phenomenal one uh so yeah so sort of just putting it over to you just for the last few minutes just anything else you want to share about where you see the world today what you see for the future what you want to share so i just leave that as a very big open open question for you well i work i, I work primarily with adults obviously that is my business yeah. but yeah. as a sideline as i alluded to i i run a mental health charity for you so the phrase I use with them, and I, I think it's it's absolutely foundational to our understanding of what we are capable of yep. and what we are capable without filtering of allowing the world to do to us is this one. It's a Henry Ford quote. If you think you can and you think you can't, you're right. So it's all about where you situate your mind. If you think something is absolutely impossible, it will remain so. You've set that barrier for yourself. But if you think you can, you will find a strategy. You'll find that how, how do I make this happen? And in that, that's gold, I think. Yeah. I've used that myself a lot in recent times, you know, post post operations, post disability. I've used that a lot. I use that, you know, throughout the age groups of people that I work with. Yeah. It's all about setting your mind frame. What do you want from this journey in life? I saw a really interesting thing online the other day. I try not to immerse myself too much in social media because it's a it's a bottomless pit of yeah. of stuff, isn't it? But this was really profound. It was a black and white photograph and it was a series of gravestones just falling into the distance and it just said these are all of your unfulfilled ambitions i thought wow you know we can say goodbye can't we through a lack of confidence and a lack of focus and a lack of self-belief we can say goodbye to everything we might ever really dream of living so what we do is we end up living a life we actually despise and we'll look back on it my mum is reviewing her life at the moment she's 81 bless her yeah and she's probably got a few weeks to live if, if that i would imagine and she just said, I haven't lived what you would call a happy life. And that's heartbreaking. Wow. Yeah. It's very profound. I, isn't wept, it? you know, I wept profoundly when I heard that. I thought, imagine yeah. reviewing your life and thinking that that's the case. So if, if whoever's listening today, please don't let that be your epitaph, the one that you yeah. chisel for yourself on your gravestone. Just get the right mental health support around you. And it's different for everyone, isn't it? I've tried yeah. CBT. I've tried yeah. all kinds of pathways. But neurolinguistic programming works for me yeah. because I'm a person that's busy in the body. And I need something that helps me to do things differently. So my my mind and body need to work together and stuff. I can't just change my brain. My body's yeah. got to be fluid. Yeah. So if you've tried a pathway that hasn't worked for you, my dad said to me, oh, mental health practice doesn't work for me. And I thought, well, you haven't tried enough avenues. Yeah. You keep trying until you find something that works for you. And it may not work for you forever. 
So keep okay. trying different options. Talk to more knowledgeable others. And talk to people who've been on your pathway. So if you are struggling with mental health, and there's no shame in it now, thank goodness, these conversations are open yep. and uh, free. So, you know, try steps to well-being as a start-off. You'll you know, be dumped, unfortunately, after about six weeks of that, won't you? Right, so yeah. you need to find something else that works for yeah. you. But, you know, just talking, particularly men, if men are listening to this, please, please, my darlings, yep. talk about your mental health because um, there's no shame in it. You know, we're all in this very difficult journey of life together. So. Um, just talk. Yeah. talk and i like well as, as sad as it is but very profound the thoughts that your mum shared you know with with that with that thing about the happiness and, and leading a happier life and and i think so many people find it a struggle to to create the time and space to do that and that's what we're seeing a lot more of now especially is you know too busy too many things going on not enough time for myself you know i'm a massive advocate of prioritizing ourselves over everything else you know so number one priority for me is me that's, <laughs> I mean that's not a selfish thing either is it Matt? not at all not at all the no, first thing it... I do when I meet a client is I I do a little like a pizza wheel I call yeah. it and I get them to to just to just divide it up and see you know these these are the categories you can choose from and you can you can sketch in as, as much as you okay. like and yep. things but you know how much time are you at work and nearly nearly always but 80 90 percent of your yeah. life is consumed by work yep. most people hate their job that's what I hear <laughs> it's a sad reality it's sad reality yeah hate my boss you know, I'm stuck. I hear that word probably more than any other word. Yeah. I'm stuck. I hate it. I'm miserable. Um, I'm not going anywhere. And I yeah. can imagine that's painful. Yeah. And then when I say, you know, how much time are you spending um, with your partner? And it gets a tiny little yeah, wafer yeah. thin strip. And how much time are you spending with your children? Even smaller. They don't know who I am, especially if you're talking to, to people who are, have executive lives and like you are involved in global traveling. Yeah. And then how much time are you spending with yourself or for yourself? Yeah. Sometimes oh. it's not very cool. It's, it, and, and it's harsh, isn't it? Because people, and, and the, the problem is though, we know it. People know it, and they but they don't change it. And it, well, I and make people accountable. Yeah, good. There's always time. Need there's to. always time. With yeah. my disability, it takes me two hours to get ready because I like to put my makeup on. I like yeah. to look like I used to look, you know. So I don't want to bring out a different version of myself. Yeah. And trying to put your mascara on, Matt, believe me, with your left hand <laughs> is not easy. It's well, not I'm, I'm left-handed, so I'm doing all right. Oh, I, I could probably do it. So, yeah, I'll be But it right. takes me an hour to put the makeup on, Matt, and it takes me about yeah. half an hour to, to take it off the areas that I didn't want it in. <laughs> so that's the work. So I have to plan back, you know, but then yeah. I also, I'm trying yeah. to learn French. My my, okay. my brother had a French girl, and I've got a French um, niece now, and she speaks very, very fluent French and very little English. So okay. I'm trying to learn French so that I can continue a loving relationship with her. So that's yeah. another hour in my morning. So yeah. I get up half past four, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but in order to fit in the me time that, that I need, I love that. That's what I do. I go out oh. for a walk in the evening. You know, I don't sit and watch box sets. You won't, you won't thank box sets in the last episode of your life when you're sitting in a nursing home when that's all you've got to be watching. Yeah. Because you won't remember those bird walks that I do at five in the morning where the birds are just waking up and you're part oh my of a chorus of amazingness. I'm on that. I, I, that's, that's. <laughs> Well, yeah, I run in the morning and it's mm -hmm. and it is, you know, it's just there's something peaceful about running in the morning. Running in the evening, I find it quite challenging because it's too late and I'm too tired and, you know, the day's winding down. And yeah, running in the morning. Oh, it's beautiful. I totally get it. Totally. Well, I leave my phone behind when I do all of these things. Okay. Yeah. Catastrophes can occur. I don't care. You know, I've just got <laughs> that, that, that confident state now of just saying yeah. the world can wait. You, you need know, that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you but, need to hold yourself accountable. You know, well, no one else can do that for you as an individual. You have to do that for yourself. So self-accountability is, is critical in all of these things. 
Yeah. And a lot of it, if people look at what they actually do in that time, is they're either resting sort of, but they're probably scrolling. They're probably doing all those, you know, things that just consume your energy versus increase your energy. So it's but important. It also, it also kicks off what I call the inner assassin. You know, you look at people yeah, yeah. who are better looking than you. You look at people with better skin or a better figure yeah. or a better job yeah. or, or, or children who are less problematic. You know, we can all find comparisons that yeah. make us feel absolutely awful about yeah. where we're currently at. So the more, the less you look at the phone, the, the more empowering it is, I think. Yeah, very, oh my God, I feel like we're just like, we're, we're continuing another journey now. We're talking about the future, you know, oh gosh, there's so many things we could could, could talk about here, isn't there? Um, Charlotte, we are right at the end. I, I apologize for like cutting this down now, but but we, you know, honestly, it's been incredible. I really enjoyed listening to your story. You're an amazing human. And I really want to sort of, you know, wish you all the very best because I know there's there's other there's a lot of things going on in your world at the moment, especially with your mum and, uh, you know, wishing you and um, and your mum and your family all the love and and everything else, you know, and, and taking care of yourself is really important in all of that, as you are well aware, you, you know, keep doing what you do because you're obviously doing, doing a good thing. Um, but thank you really appreciate it um and i look forward to sort of following your journey listening more to what's going on um and i will be encouraging people to reach out to you to have a chat hopefully a few people might reach in um fingers crossed so yeah all the very best for the future take care of yourself um and hopefully speak to you soon thank you you too you're doing a great job it's wonderful. oh you're welcome thank you thank you for joining me <laughs>